Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. In the last episode, we talked about Dominic Dunn's first act, his life before Hollywood, his 25 years in Hollywood, and then spending his time alone, writing, and trying to reclaim his life in that one-room cabin in Oregon. In this episode, we're going to talk about what happens next. Dominic Dunn finding his bearings, barely, and then losing them all again, only to resurrect as the warrior for justice that he is remembered for. What is at the apex of this resurrection? The murder of his beloved daughter Dominique just weeks before her 23rd birthday, dead by the hands of her lover, John Sweeney. This episode contains the details of intimate partner abuse, which is never okay. Never. Please see the show notes for resources or help. Let's investigate. After leaving that cabin in Oregon, Dominic, listening to his one-time friend Truman Capote, does get to New York City. He moves into a terrible apartment, the one he can afford in the city, and begins writing. This is 1980, 1981. During this time, Dominic is writing his first novel, The Winners, loosely based on the scandal that he saw going down in his last days in Hollywood. This first book will be a flop. Dominic says so himself. However, He is clean, he is sober, he is writing, and working on rebuilding his life from those final days of destruction in Hollywood. Dominic this year will also spend some time with his 20-year-old daughter, Dominique, where she is studying abroad in Florence, Italy. Dominique Ellen Dunn, named for both her father and mother, is born in Santa Monica on November 23, 1959. This is Nick and Lenny's California child. Their boys were born in New York City, but remember the Dunns have moved out to sunny California, and Dominique is their blessing. Dominic will call her a treasure. Remember Lenny and Nick have lost two daughters soon after their births to a lung disease that was common in cesarean births back then. Dominique is joy to her parents, to her brothers, and it seems like joy to most everyone she encountered. Dominic will describe her in his 1984's article, Justice for Vanity Fair, this way. Dominique was all three daughters in one to us, triply loved. She adored her older brothers and was always totally at ease in a sophisticated world without being sophisticated herself. She was a collector of stray animals. In her menagerie wore a cat with a lobotomy and a large dog with stunted legs. Dominique's godparents are Maria Cooper Janice, daughter of Gary and Veronica Cooper, and Martin Manilis, legendary Hollywood producer and one-time head of television for 20th Century Fox, also a great friend of Nick's. Dominique, with her long dark hair and big brown eyes, lovely child, adored. She has a happy childhood in that house on Walden Drive. Some of the most amazing footage of Dominique as a child is taken in these magnificent home movies from the Sunday beach parties held at Roddy McDowell's beach home. You can find these gems on YouTube. All films are silent. They are all amazing. Because you see, kids and parents attend these Sunday affairs at Roddy's. 
all very casual, hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill. I mean, casual if you like the young and hot scene of Hollywood. It is the scene. Anyone who's everyone, everyone who is anyone, is there. These films from the summer of 1965 are truly a delight. So little Dominique is at some of these casual affairs, and her idols growing up are the actresses that attend these parties too. Jane Fonda, Julie Andrews, Natalie Wood. Not that this is the only place Dominique is exposed to stars. Natalie Wood is a really good friend of her mother's. So just to put into your mind, this is the kind of childhood Dominique is having. Dominique is 10 when her parents divorce, but again, the beloved child, she will maintain a very good relationship with both of her parents. In her early teens, she thinks that maybe she would like to get into acting. How could you not really within that family? Her older brother, Griffin, is already acting and producing, and big brother is always looking up to them. Dominique will attend great schools, the Harvard-Westlake School in L.A., the Taft School in Connecticut, and Fountain Valley School in Colorado. After graduating high school, she will attend the University of Colorado, where she does become interested much more in acting. This is a brief time, though. Dominique will be looking for something a little bit different soon enough. She's wanting to expand her world a bit. Dominique will head to Florence, Italy, for a year to study art and the Italian language and by all accounts having a marvelous time. Dominic will visit his daughter there. He'll buy her a pair of sunglasses, which Dominique will call her Annie Hall glasses. After a successful year in Italy, the acting thing is too strong of a pull, and Dominique will come back to the States and study acting at Milton Katsela's acting workshop in California. Milton, having learned under the great Lee Strasberg, and having worked as an assistant to Elia Kazan, has opened the Beverly Hills Playhouse in 1978. Milton will teach acting at the Beverly Hills Playhouse for three decades, including such students in its ranks like Jenna Elfman, George Clooney, Tom Selleck, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ted Danson, Tony Danza, Gene Hackman, and Alec Baldwin. So many more, but the Beverly Hills Playhouse does become a pretty big deal. Dominique is back in town just a few weeks, driving her VW Blue Bug convertible, and hey, study long, study wrong. She's going to land her first role almost immediately, starring in 1979's Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. Other small television roles follow, including parts on Breaking Away, Fame, Heart to Heart, and Lou Grant. Dominique's big break comes in 1981, when she's cast as Dana Freeling in Steven Spielberg's film Poltergeist. Poltergeist is an enormous success, and things are really taking off for this young actress. Not that work is the only thing going for the young and beautiful girl. This is her city, and she's back in it, reconnecting with her friends and making new ones. In the fall of 1981, Dominique will meet John Sweeney. Sweeney is one of the chefs at Ma Maison, which is a super exclusive restaurant hotspot on Melrose. Ma Maison is the brainchild of Patrick Terrell, famed French restaurateur. And in 1973, when it opens, this place is financially backed by Gene Kelly. In 1975, a young chef named Wolfgang Puck will come along to work for Ma Maison and really ups the game. By 1981, it's a hot spot and so exclusive that the number of Ma Maison is not published in the phone book to avoid just regular, common, ordinary people trying to worm their way in. 
The connection with Dominique and John is instant. He is older by a few years. He is 25 to Dominique's 21, about to be turning 22. And I think that we could call this today what happens between these two love bombing. Within a few weeks, Dominique and John have moved in together into a one-bedroom home in West Hollywood. The honeymoon period does not last long. It goes south fairly fast. Sweeney is possessive, domineering, jealous, and controlling. He wants Dominique to check in all the time. Sweeney begins to cut her off from the other healthy relationships in her life. There are visits at this time with Dominique and her father and mother and brothers, and the family does sense Dominique's unhappiness. Dominic will tell Lenny after one of these visits that Sweeney seems to love Dominique far more than she loves him, and Lenny will agree. Dominique's brother Alex is the only one who really does get a horrible feeling about it all. He's the only one who will voice his great dislike of Sweeney. There is a night that Dominique, Sweeney, and Alex all are at PJ Clark's, another L.A. hotspot, and Sweeney goes to the restroom, and during this time, a tipsy fan of the movie Poltergeist comes over to Dominique and will say her famous line from that film back to her, what's happening? Fan stuff. Dominique takes it in stride. The group is laughing and having a moment of fun with an enthusiastic fan. Sweeney returns from the bathroom and is enraged. He picks the fan up and shakes him violently. A very out-of-proportion response to a very common fan reaction, you know, if you're in the business. The following day, Dominic is meeting his daughter and Sweeney for lunch. He does not know about the incident that happened the night before at PJ Clark's. The couple is late to arrive, and Dominic can tell that when the couple does arrive that Dominique had been crying and there is tension between the two. This lunch occurs at a very fancy place. Sweeney being in the business and all, there's a great fuss made over him. The chef of the restaurant comes out, and you would think this would be a good way to impress your girlfriend's father, but Dominic will find Sweeney, quote, ill at ease, nervous, difficult to talk to. It occurred to me that Dominique might have difficulty extricating herself from such a person, but I did not pursue the thought, unquote. Suspicions are high, but the family has no idea that Sweeney's penchant for violence has now turned on to Dominique. He has begun to physically abuse her as well. It is not until the summer of 1982 that Dominique will reveal the physical abuse she is suffering along with the verbal, mental, and emotional abuse as well. There's one night in August 1982 that Dominique escapes the home and seeks safety at Lenny's home. Safely inside, mother and daughter are horrified when Sweeney shows up, banging on the windows and causing general mayhem outside their home, insisting on being with Dominique. Dominique will return to Sweeney, and the abuse will continue. The typical cycles of abusers are happening. The rage, the explosion, the apologies, the love bombing. It is a much more familiar cycle to us today, but not quite as explored or revealed fully back in the early 1980s. There is a night that follows in the home, witnessed by a friend who's staying with the couple at the time, where the friend, Brian Cook, hears the couple arguing in the bedroom. The sounds become so terrible, Brian will interrupt the scene 
and Dominique will tell him that Sweeney is trying to kill her. Sweeney denies it, says, of course it's not true, everything is fine, let's all go back to bed. Which they do, but they don't. Dominique will flee through the bathroom window, get to her car to attempt to leave the property and find safety. Sweeney hears this, runs out of the home, and will launch himself onto her vehicle to prevent her from leaving. But Dominique this time will get away. Her mother is out of town, so it is to a friend of the family that she will go. And this family friend, naturally in the middle of the night, child showing up in this type of condition, is horrified. And this friend will take pictures of Dominique that night to document the bruises, cuts, and damage done to her physical body. The morning comes and Dominique will report to work that day. She has been cast in a role for the television drama Hill Street Blues playing an abuse victim. Dominique will not need the skills of the makeup department on that set. No makeup was used. The bruises and cuts that you see in this scene are the result of her lover from the night before who is not a lover at all. Dominique, after this, will head to her mother's, leaving Sweeney for good. She breaks it off. The relationship is over. She insists that he gets out of the home. Sweeney will move out. Dominique will change the locks on the home. These events occur five weeks before her murder. Dominique, not slowing down, she has been cast in a television pilot for a series called V, The Final Battle. There are continuing harassing phone calls from Sweeney. He is following her around town as well. She is doing what she can to remove herself from his toxic presence. October 30th, 1982. This is a year into the relationship between them. A year, y'all. That's how long they've known each other. Dominique is at home, rehearsing lines with a fellow named David Packer, one of her co-stars in V, The Final Battle. Sweeney will arrive at the home that October night begging to talk to Dominique. She finally agrees to talk with him on the porch. David Packer inside can hear the escalating argument and then a noise like someone being hit and then a loud thud. Packer will call the police but is connected to the incorrect precinct and they will not be able to offer help. Packer's next phone call is to a friend where he will leave a message that says, if I die tonight, it is John Sweeney that did it. Packer will exit the home through the back door to circle around to the front of the home, where he will see Dominique in the bushes with Sweeney on top of her. Sweeney says to call the police, and this time, when Packer does, he is put through to the correct precinct. When the police arrive, Sweeney confesses to the crime, saying, I've killed my girlfriend. Dominic's phone will ring Halloween morning in New York City at 5 a.m. And reaching for the phone, he feels disaster looms. It is Detective Harold Johnston from the L.A. Homicide Bureau. Detective Johnston tells Dominic that his 22-year-old daughter Dominique was near death after being rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center. Dominic's first question is, has my wife been told? Detective Johnston says he is calling from her home. Lenny will take the phone and tell Dominic, I need you. Dominic asks, what happened? Lenny responds with one word, Sweeney. 
Dominic says he will be on the first plane. I want to skip ahead in the timeline of our story a bit here. All of the moments from now, with Dominique near death in the hospital, through to the trial, and its fallout are so interconnected and well told by Dominic himself. How do we have such an account of a father's anguish? Fast forwarding our story to Independence Day weekend the following year, 1983. Just a year before, Dominic at this time is visiting his daughter in California in a world that she is building with such promise. This year, 1983, finds him packing to leave for California to attend the jury selection for the trial of Sweeney. So Independence Day weekend, 1983, Dominic is called. Friends invite him to dinner. It's a Independence Day party and insists that he attend. And Dominic is like, this is simply impossible. I'm leaving in two days to attend the trial of my daughter's murderer. His friends continue to insist, and Dominic will attend that dinner. At that event, he is seated next to Tina Brown, a young English woman, totally unknown at the time. Nice girl from across the pond. She was the editor of The Tatler, and she's visiting New York City. They sit next to each other and have this incredible conversation. Dominic says she wasn't famous. She wasn't anything. I had to ask her name again. They enjoy a moment. They share conversation. Dominic leaves the party and again off to pack his bags to fly out of New York to California on July 5th. But there's a call the next day and it's that young, nice English woman, Tina Brown. Please have lunch with me today. Dominic, again, that's impossible. I'm, I'm on a flight tomorrow morning. Dominic relents and see Tina at that lunch. She lays it out. Dominic, you shouldn't be wasting all of these Hollywood stories of yours at dinner parties. You should be writing for a magazine. And this, remember, was the time of that big flop book. Dominic says, uh, yeah, I just wrote this book and it was an enormous failure. You're confusing me with someone else. I wouldn't know how to write for a magazine. Tina Brown says, I can teach you how. The thing that's revealed at this lunch is that Tina Brown is shortly about to be the new editor of Vanity Fair. At the time, Dominic will say this, Vanity Fair was kind of a flop, and Tina Brown will be the one that makes it into a triumph. Because they've talked the night before what he's going to do in California and that he doesn't really want to talk about it, But please, Dominic, keep a journal. Keep a journal every day. Write down what is happening to you. No one has written an account like you could write. We've all read about trials, but Tina nails it when she tells Dominic no one is writing trials from the viewpoint of being a major participant in a trial. I've never read that story. Out of those journals, that Dominic Dunn will keep every day during the trial of his daughter's murderer will come his first article for Vanity Fair called Justice, published in the March 1984 Vanity Fair issue, the first under the publication at the helm of Tina Brown. It is this article, Justice, so beautifully done, that will launch Dominic's second act, writing his account of that trial he will say, shows him the power that we writers have. That article does become read in law schools. 
It shows when a trial goes wrong, what can happen. And that trial does go wrong, friends. It goes really, really wrong. We will get to the trial in part two next week, but the family's not even thinking about the trial part now. In our narrative, in this episode, I want to time hop in reverse now back into our story where Dominic is hearing that one word from Lenny on the telephone, Sweeney. The most compelling viewpoint we get is from Dominic himself in that premier article in 1984's Vanity Fair Justice. Dominic, hanging up the phone from the call with Lenny, will call their son Griffin, who lives just a few blocks away from Dominic. Griffin arrives. He calls TWA and then goes immediately to an ATM to get cash out for his father. A note here. I just want to call your attention to how much the Dunn kids love their dad. Dominic doesn't have the cash at this point. Griffin goes to the ATM for him. In that last horrible month in California for Dominic, before he leaves for Oregon, Dominique pays his rent. Nick and Lenny sure raised good kids. Back to the story. Griffin, after taking care of Dominic's immediate needs, will then go to his brother and they make arrangements to get to California along with Dominic to be with Dominique and Lenny. Dominic writes, By the time I'd arrived in Los Angeles at noon that Sunday, the report that Dominique had been strangled outside her home by her former boyfriend and was in a coma at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center was on all the news channels and stations. It is Nick's friend, Mark Crowley, author of Boys in the Band, who picks Nick up at the airport and is able to provide at least the minimal amount of information that Mart has been able to ascertain from Lenny. The two arrive at Lenny's home on Crescent Drive, and as Dominic writes, they find it full of friends lending support, and it stays that way from early morning until late at night for the next seven or eight days during which relay teams of friends manned the telephones, screened the calls, handled the coffee detail, accepted the endless deliveries of flowers, made all the arrangements for our day-to-day living. Lenny, by this time, has moved out of the Walden Drive home and moved into a one-level home instead. Lenny was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and is assisted with a wheelchair by this time in 1982. Upon Nick's arrival at the home, TV sets and radios are all tuned in to the news for the latest bulletins. Dominic will write, In the midst of this confusion sat Lenny in her wheelchair. She was very calm. The news is not good, she said to me. And within minutes I heard the words brain damage being whispered around the house. All of the family is on the way into town. Dominic's mother-in-law is on her way from San Diego, Griffin and Alex will be arriving shortly. Relatives are calling, too. Also, friends from in the States as well as overseas. Dominique's assault is making news, and already the rich and powerful are circling around the guilty, providing cover, excuses, and access. In the Los Angeles Times the day after the attack, the owner of Ma Meza, Patrick Terrell, will talk about his sous chef, Sweeney. Terrell will describe Sweeney as a, quote, very dependable young man, unquote, and furthermore go on to pledge to obtain the very best legal representation for this terrible plight that Sweeney finds himself in. Terrell will make no comment about Dominique, who he knows, who he has known for a year as the girlfriend of his sous chef. Furthermore, Terrell knows the Duns. 
the Duns actually have the telephone number to Ma Maison in their personal directory. They don't need the phone book. Patrick Terrell never contacts the family. No letter of condolence, no phone call, nothing. Just fierce defense of Sweeney. Dominic will write that Patrick Terrell will become the focus of his growing rage about the whole situation. Ironically enough, the public defender that Sweeney is assigned is known as highly acclaimed and doggedly tough. No less than Detective Johnston, who the family is still in contact with, tell them so. This public defender is named Michael Adelson. Also, there is someone assisting the defense by the name of Joseph Shapiro, who is the legal counsel for a very top-tier law firm of Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvine. This is the legal counsel of Mamezan and all of the influence that Patrick Terrell can buy. Dominic will write, Although Shapiro's role on the defense team was later played down, he was an ever-present but elusive figure. From the night following the murder, when he visited Sweeney in the Beverly Hills jail, right up till the day of the verdict, where he exulted in the courtroom. Another thread here before we move on that I find really moving I want to take you back now to the last episode where Dominic speaks of his mother-in-law. She never likes him. Never. Not one day. Dominic is a no-good gold digger and he will ruin you, Lenny, my daughter. In this moment of tragedy, there's something so touching to me about the scene in which Dominic writes, At the time of the murder, Dominique was consistently identified in the press as the niece of my brother and sister-in-law, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, rather than as the daughter of Lenny and me. At first, I was too stunned by the killing for this to matter, but as the days passed, it bothered me. I spoke to Lenny about it one morning in her bedroom. She said, oh, what difference does it make? With such despair in her voice that I felt ashamed to be concerned with such a trivial matter at such a crucial time. In the room with us was my former mother-in-law, Beatrice Sandoval Griffin Goodwin. She is a strong, uncompromising woman who has never not stated exactly what was on her mind in any given situation, a trait that has made her respected, if not always endearing. Listen to what he's saying to you, she said emphatically to Lenny. It sounds as if Dominique was an orphan raised by her aunt and uncle. Lenny looked up with a changed expression. And, added her mother, to underscore the point, she had two brothers as well. You handle it, Lenny said to me. I called the publicist Rupert Allen, a family friend, and explained the situation to him. It's hurtful to us. It's as if we not only lost her, but been denied parentage as well, I said. It'll be taken care of, Rupert said, and it was. We will definitely talk in the future about Dominic's brother, John Gregory Dunn, and his wife, Joan Didion. But keeping to the story that we're in today, Dominique is in the hospital, and in addition to the friends and relatives and everyone else calling, so are doctors. Dominic is contacted by a surgeon. The surgeon says it is necessary to insult a bolt into Dominique's skull to relieve the pressure on her brain. Dominic, after giving permission for this, asks when the family might be able to come and see Dominique. Not yet, the doctor says, not yet. In this next bit, again, quoting directly from Justice here, is this writing. This is what Tina Brown is talking about. The family does want to see their joy, their Dominique, and about this event, Dominic writes, The boys arrived, ashen-faced. 
When the time came to go to the hospital, we were full of dreadful apprehension. Some friends said to Lenny, you mustn't go. It would be a terrible mistake to look at her this way. You must remember her as she was. They were, of course, thinking of Lenny's health. Stress is the worst thing for multiple sclerosis victims. She replied, the mistake would be if I didn't see her. That is what I would have to live with. The four of us proceeded in silence through the maze of corridors leading to the intensive care unit on the fifth floor of Cedars-Sinai. One of us, I don't remember which, pushed Lenny's wheelchair, and the other two flanked her, a formation that we would automatically fall into many times in the year that followed. She said that no one but immediate family would be allowed in and asked us to show identification. They were afraid the press would try to pass themselves off as members of the family. She warned us that it would be a shock to look at her and that we should be prepared. I worried about Lenny and looked over at her. She closed her eyes, bowed her head, and took a deep breath. I watched her will strength into herself through some inner spiritual force in a moment so intensely private that I dared not even later question her about it. Of the four of us, she was the strongest when we entered the room. At first, I did not realize that the person on the bed was Dominique. There were tubes in her everywhere, and the life support system caused her to breathe in and out with a grotesque jerking movement that seemed a parody of life. Her eyes were open, massively enlarged, staring sightlessly up at the ceiling. Her beautiful hair had been shaved off. A large bolt had been screwed into her skull to relieve the pressure on her brain. Her neck was purpled and swollen. Vividly visible on it were the marks of the massive hands of the man who had strangled her. It was nearly impossible to look at her, but also impossible to look away. Lenny wheeled her chair to the bed and took Dominique's hand in hers and spoke to her in a voice of complete calm. Hello, my darling, it's Mom. We are all here, Dominique, Dad and Griffin and Alex. We love you. Her words released us, and the boys and I stepped forward and surrounded the bed, each touching a different part of Dominique. The nurses had said that she could not hear us, but we felt that she could and took turns talking to her. We prayed for her to live, even though we knew that it would be best for her to die. Doesn't that pierce your heart, this kind of writing? This kind of tenderness? You maybe can get the poignancy of this debut narrative. It is a father's anguish, his confusion, his writings of that time. Cedar sinai doctors will come to the family, sharing medical test results as they come in. We'll let Lenny and Nick know that the brain scan is even for Dominique, meaning that it shows no life in their darling daughter. The doctor continues that it is necessary to take three more brain scans to ensure in the trial ahead that the defense is not able to blame the hospital for removing life support too quickly. The Dunn family has not even thought about a trial. They are looking at their sweet daughter dying, their sister dying. They're not even considering that there is a trial component of this tragedy. But a murder has taken place, and this does become clearer as the days go on. Dominique's brain scans remain constant, showing no activity, and on the fourth day after the assault, Lenny says to the doctors that Dominique's organs should be donated. The family does go in to say goodbye to their beloved 
and Dominique is taken off life support November 4th, 1982, out of this life three weeks before her 23rd birthday. Dominique is wheeled into surgery for the removal of her organs for future transplant operations, which take place almost immediately. Her body is then turned over to the coroner for her autopsy. On this same day, November 4th, while the autopsy is taking place, Dominic heads to the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills to make the arrangements for his daughter's funeral. Dominic has called this church the Lady of the Cadillacs during his time in Hollywood, in due deference to the prestige and power of its parishioners. Lots of Catholic stars attend the Lady of the Cadillacs in Beverly Hills. It's kind of a big deal. Dominic does arrive at the rectory, and the Monsignor is saying Mass, and the housekeeper will direct Dominic to wait. Upon the conclusion of Mass, the elderly and maybe a bit senile Monsignor will say he has read of the murders in the papers, and maybe acts a little hesitant to hold the funeral for such an event. But Dominic talks to him, Monsignor, you officiated Dominic's baptism 22 years ago. We were members of this parish. You came to our home after her baptism. The Monsignor is not recalling. Dominic continues, Martin Manilis, the producer you know, is Dominic's godfather. He will be giving the eulogy. Nothing from the Monsignor. Maria Cooper is her godmother. Monsignor, the priest will consult a book now. This he remembers. And then he recalls the time he performed last rites and the funeral mass for Gary Cooper. The Monsignor continues, He had always really hoped that Maria Cooper would be a nun, but then she married that Jewish fellow. That Jewish fellow is the famed pianist Byron Janus. Dominic will write, By now the church was a certainty. Music is discussed. The time and date are settled. Saturday, November 6th at 11 a.m. The following morning, there is a small complication, as the Monsignor had previously booked a wedding into the Lady of the Cadillac Church at 11 o'clock that same Saturday morning. The groom-to-be reads this news in Dominique's obituary and thankfully raises the issue that there may in fact be a small problem. The groom-to-be calls the church, the church calls the family, and that afternoon, Dominic, his sons, and Martin Manilis, for good measure, show up at the rectory to try to sort it all out. There is a priest there that is not the Monsignor that speaks very heavy Flemish. It's not this guy's fault, but the family does point out that the chaos at a funeral and a wedding being held at the same time in the church could perhaps cause. The wedding people refuse to move theirs. As it was too late to change the announcements in the newspapers, the Dunn family will hire 12 ushers to be at the church at 10.30 in the morning, half an hour before the wedding, to tell funeral guests to come back at noon. Dominic writes, I cannot comprehend how such an error could have been made, I said to the priest. It's even worse than you realize, Mr. Dunn, he replied. What do you mean? The groom in the wedding is a friend of the man who murdered your daughter. It is that night on the news, the night before Dominique's funeral, that the family watches Sweeney being arraigned for her murder. Sweeney is accompanied by Michael Addison and Joseph Shapiro. Dominic writes, 
As we watched, we all began to feel guilty for not having spoken out our true feelings about Sweeney when there was still time to save Dominique from him. In the days that followed, her friends began to tell us just how terrified she was of him during the last weeks of her life. I found out for the first time that five weeks previously he had assaulted her and choked her and that she had escaped from him and broken off her relationship with him. Fred Leopold, a family friend and the former mayor of Beverly Hills, told us during a condolence call that he'd heard from a secretary in his law office that John Sweeney had severely beaten another woman a year or so earlier. We passed this information to Detective Harold Johnston, who stayed close to our family during those days. The next day, Saturday, November 6th, is hot. Way hotter than it should be for that time of year. On the car ride to the Lady of the Cadillacs, Dominic will notice at the intersection of Santa Monica Boulevard and Bedford Drive that the tinsel holiday decorations are going up on the lampposts. I do find it fascinating the details that he notices and writes down in that journal. Another detail that gets me every time is the family pulls up to the church. They are touched to see the surgeon from the hospital in attendance, but it is this detail that got me when I was 12 years old reading this story and still to this day gets me. Quote, when the chauffeur opened the door for us to get out, a hot gust of wind blew multicolored wedding confetti into the car. Talk about a writer in waiting, y'all. At least in some true and sincere kind of development. I'm going to say it again. Thank you, Tina Brown. For real. Thank you. At the funeral, the press is in attendance. Dominic encourages the family not to say anything to them. Lenny is in her wheelchair and the boys all together in that formation. The family circles around to the back of the church to use the ramp to get Lenny easily inside the church. Reporters are walking backwards, circling around the family in their procession to the back. Dominic writes, Lenny has extraordinary dignity. Dressed curiously for a funeral in a long lavender dress with pearls and a large straw hat, she made no attempt to turn away from the television cameraman. They seemed to respect her, and one by one, they dropped away. The church is filled with the people who knew and loved Dominique. Her brothers read a poem by Yeats. Martin Manilis, her godfather, will give that eulogy. In it, he says, Every year of her life, we spent Christmas Eve together at a carol sing at our house. When she could barely talk, she stood between her brothers and sang what resembled a little town of Bethlehem and spoke a single line from the Gospel of St. Luke, taught to her patiently by her doting parents, because there was no room at the inn. And standing there with those huge grave eyes, she was, in life, an infanta by Goya only more beautiful. Grieving, as parents will do a few nights later, Lenny and Nick are watching their beautiful daughter Dominique, their joy, on that particular episode of Hill Street Blues. The episode was dedicated to her, and the couple while watching does not talk. They do not cry. They stare at the television. Dominic writes, She looked so incredibly young. She played a battered child. What we would not know until the trial was that the marks on her neck were real from John Sweeney's assault on her five weeks before he killed her. 
Dominic does return to New York and, in so doing, writes of this particular account. On my first day back in New York after the funeral, I was mugged, leaving the subway at 12 noon in Times Square. I thought I was the only person on the stairway I was ascending to the street, but suddenly I was grabbed from behind and pulled off balance. I heard the sound of a switchblade opening and a hand, which was all I ever saw of my assailant, reached around and held the knife in front of my face. From out of my mouth came a sound of rage that I did not know I was capable of making. It was more animal than human, and I was later told it had been heard a block away. Within seconds, people came running from every direction. In his panic, my assailant superficially slashed my chin with the blade of his knife, but I had beaten him. I had both my wallet and my life, and I realized that, uncourageous as I am about physical combat, I would have fought before giving in. Whoever that nameless, faceless man was, to me, he was John Sweeney. Dominic will continue within the article justice. If Dominique had been killed in an automobile accident, horrible as that would have been, at least it would have been over and mourning could have begun. A murder is an ongoing event until the day of the sentencing, and mourning has to be postponed. After several trips west for preliminary hearings, I returned to Los Angeles in July for the trial. Which is where we will pick up in next week's episode with the trial of Sweeney, with Dominic keeping that daily journal that Tina Brown encourages and all the ways that trial goes wrong, and the transformation that Dominic goes through to, again, become the warrior for justice that we know him to be. Thanks so much for joining me today on this journey, friends. We are done and done. Until next time, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.